Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Rodenbush, Director of Alumni Engagement for Recovery Centers of America. And today we are at our Indianapolis facility, and I am joined with alum Nick, who is graciously offered to share his story with us today and talk to us a little bit about recovery. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And um, Indianapolis facility, tell us a little bit about where we are and what happens here. So we are inside RCA Indianapolis. Um, This building is very special to a lot of people. It's very special to me. Um, It's just saved a lot of people's lives and we genuinely help a lot of people throughout every day here. And it's just amazing to be a part of it. Well, I'm so grateful to be able to share this cold uh, (laughs) night, winter, and we're getting ready for the alumni to come back every Wednesday here in Indianapolis, Wednesday nights. Um, Our alums come back to the facility uh, where they receive treatment. It's actually an open meeting. Anyone can come, right? Yes. Um, But we'll have, uh, I don't know, 50 alums come back on any given day, maybe 20. I I know last week he said he had about 20 online and 50 in the building. And then we, we were able to offer that to some of our patients as well. So it's just a really exciting time. Um, to hear, usually there's a speaker that comes and, and shares their experience, strength and hope, and people will come to get celebrate certain milestones, um, just to come back to the facility and see the staff and see other people they were in treatment with and, and kind of celebrate to recovery together. So we're looking forward to that to, tonight. And I just asked Nick if, if he would be willing to sit down and, and talk with us a little bit before that. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what do you do here at RCA? So I am a medical assistant. Um, I assist with admissions when people come in. I do all their blood work. I, God, it's hard to put it into words sometimes because it's my real job is really just drug testing, blood work, a lot of clerical stuff, like kind of a glorified secretary. But it's super it, it, that's such a critical point when people come in. Yes. Like they, I remember how it was to come in or to re-come in as like a readmit patient. And I remember how scary it is when you're first coming in or how embarrassing you feel or embarrassing I felt when I had to come back a second time to RCA a couple of years later. And I try really, really hard to make everyone, A, I try to make people laugh. because everyone and I try to make them feel comfortable I try to make people feel like no you are not this is not an embarrassing moment you need to be proud of yourself like you could have you could have done a lot worse you could have stayed out there you could have hurt somebody you could have hurt yourself but you're here you're still trying and I think the fact that you know what they've been through right you have that commonality right and I think it shows I mean I like I said I try really hard I might, my main job might be just doing those couple of things or to, you know, help the providers do what they do. And, but I go out of my way on a daily basis to help every department in here if they need help. Or I try to, I do my best. I'm not perfect by any means, but I spend a lot of time talking to patients when they, a lot of people, because I was a patient here, I do know how they're feeling. And a lot of people feel very comfortable coming up to me and talking to me throughout the day about what they have going on. And I 
do my best to keep people in this building because I know how it is to leave early. I've left early or I've had to leave early because of insurance or because I was feeling better, you know, mm-hmm. feeling better and being, being better, better are two, are two different things. Right. And it's like, and that's something we all deal with when we come through treatment. I mean, I dealt with it every day when I was here. So it's, I love my job. I love being here. And I love like, I love the voice that I get to have in this building because I don't get to have that anywhere else. And I think our patient, it shows in our patient experience and the fact that they relate to you and, and you do make them feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, thank you for your work. Yeah, thank you. No worries. Would you mind taking us back to how did you wind up needing treatment? So when I was younger and I never, you know, I really never did any drugs. I remember going through dare and all this stuff. I went to a Catholic school, you know, I grew up, my parents got divorced when I was small, very small. I think I was eight years old, but I never really, I led a very sheltered life. You know, I was in bed by eight o'clock. I was very by myself. I was kind of a loner. Um, I wanted to have friends, but I really didn't know how to speak to people. And I still have that. I still have that issue. I feel like I still have an issue sometimes. A lot of people tell me that's in my head, but I really felt like I was alone all the time, no matter how much work I did or how like was whatever sports teams I was on. I played basketball. I tried to play football. I tried to do all these things, but I never quite felt good enough. I saw these people with all their girlfriends and all this stuff, and I just wasn't capable of talking to females like that. And so it really, really, it did a number on me, and I never realized it until I got older and started working the steps and all, like, the resentments I was holding on people from, like, grade school. But I think after, once I started driving, around sophomore year, I started coming out to Indiana. Like I said, I grew up outside of Chicago, and I met people, and... You know, we just, in order to try and please them, because they liked me, they wanted to hang out with me. And so in order to please them, they started smoking weed. So I started smoking weed. Then one day, it was, I weirdly remember the date, it was Valentine's Day in like 2003. They started doing coke, and so I started doing coke. And then that just spiraled down into crack cocaine, and I just, I felt really hard. I went through years of not doing it. You know, I did it for a while, and that's why I initially moved to Denver, Colorado, was to get away from people and to try and start over. But it would last a couple years all the time. I would drink pretty heavily throughout those times and smoke weed. But it just got really bad in 2016, I think, when I was introduced to meth. And that was, I was living in Oklahoma at the time, and I was introduced to meth, and I literally disappeared for four months left my whole life behind. And did you have trepidation about trying meth or do you remember that first I do. experience? I can picture it like it happened yesterday. I had been working in Kansas City. I worked construction for a long time. I had been working in Kansas City and I was married at that time for probably five or six years, seven years, something like that. And I just wasn't happy. I came home because I was sick and I had noticed while I was drinking then, drug-seeking started coming back very, very bad. Mm -hmm. And one night, everything just aligned. I met the wrong person at the wrong time, and I was fine with trying it. 
I really thought I had done enough coke and I had smoked enough crack to where I can do anything, I'll be fine. And meth was not, that was not the same thing. Mm. It completely ate me alive. And how everyone responds to a different drug is, is different. Right. Well, and up to that point, nobody really knew in my new life that I've led with all these work. I've worked at the same place for probably eight years. And I mean, I basically lived with these people because we traveled together and worked together. And then my wife and my stepson, like I really, nobody really knew that part of my life. I had spent a very long time putting that behind me and I've hid that for a very long time. So did it feel like, I guess that's a good question. Did it feel like a part of your life you had left behind or part of your life that was a big secret? That's an awesome question that I had never thought about before. I really feel like I had this secret that nobody else would ever know. I mean, I'd given on little bitty things like, oh yeah, I used to do coke, but I really never went to the extent to where like, excuse me, I gave up my whole life for it. Nobody really knew that. Mm. except for me maybe my mother and stuff like that but I think I that secret even I can't think of the right word but that I kept that secret so well that and so we had an office where I grew up in northwest Indiana and I would go back we would go every Christmas Mm -hmm. to work my whole family knew it I never was around for holidays every Christmas I would go home a week early wouldn't tell anyone. I'd tell my wife I was working and I would go home and sit in a hotel and I would do drugs by myself. And I would do that, spend thousands of dollars over a couple day period. And was that kind of a reward for having, I just think as someone who liked, I liked that lifestyle at that time. I thought it was pretty neat. Neat. Maybe not the right word. I thought it was pretty cool that I would be able to get away with something like that. I liked Nobody getting knew. right. I loved getting away with things. I loved that I could. I thought I was just the smartest person in the world that I can just get away with things and get away with running away and spending all this money and nobody knew it. I mean, my wife, we had the same bank account. How could she not know? Or did she care enough? You know, it was more of a. I think it was like testing the waters until I could really do what I wanted to do, and then eventually in 2016, that's what happened. I just. I remember that day I tried it. I called my wife. We always stayed at this hotel that was right next to the bar. If we drank too much, I called her and told her I drank too much because I couldn't go to sleep. And I didn't really understand meth versus coke. So the amount of coke I would do, I did in meth form. And so I probably sniffed like a whole teener of meth, which is a couple Mm -hmm. grams, I believe. And I was up for like three weeks. Mm -hmm. I remember... And being in that hotel room in the morning, and she must have talked to the front desk people because we knew everyone there. I'd been staring there for years before I lived there. I remember at like nine in the morning, there being a banging on the door. And I remember hearing her say, telling me to come outside. And I just didn't have the, I didn't have the courage to open the door. I remember like peeking through the window and seeing her like distraught, scared, wanting me to come to the door knowing that if I came to the door, I can probably explain or manipulate my way through the situation. And I was just terrified and I never opened that door. And then I disappeared for four weeks until I got arrested. And then, so that was your, was that your first arrest? 
Yeah, I mean... First... Yeah, first, first big, big one. Yeah, I mean, I had a DUI previously, but that wasn't... For some reason, that didn't feel like a big deal. It was already over. It was a couple of years before that. Mm-hmm. But that was the first arrest. And that was the big one. That was the one that actually sent me to treatment in 2016. But I did it, you know, I justified it all. I did it myself. I did it before they told me to, even though I full well knew that they were going to send me, mm-hmm. make me go do something. And I did a whole year of treatment in 2016. And I stayed sober for almost two years after that. And then, um, so you stay sober for a couple years, but then it, it, you have a recurrence. I did. Um, I really don't even know what happened. Well, I mean, I have an idea now what happened. I didn't work any steps. Mm. You know, I worked. That's it. I was working 110 hours a week. And then halfway through that, so I decided. I, I think, so there could we say you were sober, but not doing recovery. Right. I went to one meeting a week and then it started. I did. When I first started, I was going to meetings like crazy. I was doing all these great things. And then I got to the fourth step. I moved back to Illinois because I couldn't make any. I was living in Idaho at that time. And I just couldn't, I couldn't make any money. I was so far behind in all my bills. Like they were going to take my car. So I went back to my old job and they were super supportive. They knew everything that was going on. And I did really well for a long, long time until it just got to the point where I was only going to a meeting if I was home. I wasn't, I used to travel. When I would travel, I would find meetings to go to. I wasn't doing that anymore. I was just going through the motions to make everyone else happy is basically. But I had stuff, so I thought I was doing okay. Eventually, you know, after a while, I had a girlfriend. She had three children that called me dad. I mean, my life was exactly what, like, that picture of life that we all have, especially at my age. I was like, like, I'm 40 now, so it's like, in my head, I should have all these things already. I should have, like, security, financial security. I should have a family that is not my, you know what I'm saying? That's not my mom and stuff like that. And so I had everything that I thought I wanted, that I've been working for all these years, these sober years. This is what I thought. And after a little bit, after about a year and a half, I, it was about two, it was a one month shy of two years. I went to a wedding in California, one of my best friends that I used to work with and they were all doing Coke and, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But instead of doing Coke, I decided to take one tequila shot. And then the next day I drank about six more tequila shots and then I went home and everything was fine. And then this was Memorial Day, 2021, Memorial Day weekend is when I went online and found somebody who I hadn't spoke to in probably 10 years. I said, hey, can you still do this? He said, yes. And he even delivered it to me. Mm. And then that was that was the beginning of a very long year and a half, two years for me. I sold everything I'd owned. My apartment ended up, I ended up getting kicked out of my apartment. My mother died very suddenly. So and her mother died very suddenly okay. after that. I mean, it was just, I lost jobs. I mean, Things got pretty dark pretty quick. Very, very quick. And I did not know how to get out. I came to, right before my mom died is the first time I came to RCA. That was 2021 when we first opened in Indy here. And... You know, I really thought I had it, but I also knew I really didn't have it. I was really just trying to make the girlfriend happy so I can keep seeing the kids and I can 
was trying to make my mom happy because I had just neglected. We got in a very huge fight. I talked to my mother every day for most of my life, my adult life. And we had gotten into a very big fight because she tried to get me on a plane to go to rehab. And I told her how I felt about that very early one morning. And I was not nice to her. And then all of a sudden she had a stroke. And I was trying to get better for her so I can be there for her. And I was just, and once she was gone, that was it for me. I really went off another deep end for a long time. I mean, I was hanging out with people I had no business hanging out with. I was in places I had no business being. And I literally, towards the end there, before I came back here in March or February last year, I was not wanting to die, like not like I wanted to personally take my own life, but I tried to do enough drugs to where it was going to kill me very slowly. And I ended up having to be Narcan. I was hospitalized and I didn't do those kind of drugs. You know, I didn't do heroin or fentanyl or anything like that. So I did a lot. It was a very, like, a very dark time in my life. I've never felt like that again. And, and what, how did you get the courage to call for help? It's a weird story, actually. Um, I had gotten a job last year at a company in Indiana doing what I used to do, Mm -hmm. um, the construction work. And I was going to do all this. This is how I was going to fix my life with another job. A new company I've never worked for. Work has always been kind of... Yep, that's my identity. That was my identity for a long time. And this is how I was going to fix it. I found this company. They finally hired me. They paid me great money. And I'm like, this is it. When I started working for them, of course, I got my first paycheck and went and relapsed, but I kept it together. So I was supposed to go on another job and I just didn't show up. I wasn't picking up the phone. I wasn't doing all this. I had money, so I didn't need them anymore. I was staying in my mother's house, which me and my sister were at that time. I had already signed over everything to my sister so she could live in that house. So I was basically homeless. I didn't have anywhere to go, but she let me stay in her basement. Um, one day... I was sitting down there and going through my blocked messages because I can't be bothered with people who I don't want to talk to when I'm using, so I block everyone Mm -hmm. who... But I was going through the blocked messages because I was starting to feel some some sort of way. And there was a message from a man I've only known a month, and it said, this is your last chance. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I really knew that he was talking about to come to work. But the other part of me knew this is your last chance to save yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is why I literally called RCA that night and they picked me up the next morning. And that's how this all started. Was that weird? And I've told him since then because I really barely knew this guy. And I've told him since then, I'm like, the whole reason I'm here is because of you and I hope you know that. And he's, he's super supportive. He's always been nice to me. And it's just a wild... It's wild that I took that text, which I know very much know that it meant one thing, and my brain took it another way, like a self-preservation kind of thing. Like, you need to do something. You can't just sit here and kill yourself like this. Wow. And you still have a relationship with him? Um, We talked for the first couple months. We didn't really talk a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, I would check in and say hi, and he, he asked me more than once if I would work on the weekends for him, if we mm-hmm. they had local work to Indy or something because they work all over and a couple of times I thought about it but I've talked to you know I've talked to certain people that I 
kind of rely on making those kind of decisions and we came to the conclusion that that's just extra money that I don't need right now and it's extra headaches. It puts me in a place where I don't need to be. Yeah. So I have not taken him up. I haven't really spoke to him in a couple of months, but he will always hold a place in my heart because I wouldn't be here without Absolutely. him. <laughs> and so you're in this dark place. Slowly the lights are coming back on or is it quick? No. Like a light switch? I don't know. It's weird because like I'm... Like when I came here, I was it was dark. When I got to RCA, everything was dark. I remember I had a bag of wet clothes because the driver got there way earlier than he was supposed yeah, to. Yeah, we're pretty quick on the draw. Yes. Like when somebody's ready, <laughs> we're not gonna waste any time. We know that window could right. be um... small, and so I was like annoyed with that. And then I really didn't want like I remember the first time I came, there was a lot of crying, there was a lot of emotion. There really wasn't any of that this time when I came here. It was more or less just like I don't know what I'm gonna do but I know I'm not going to do it here. Mm-hmm. And I got right into groups the first day, even though I felt like crap. I really didn't want to sit around. I didn't want to be alone anymore. I felt like I'd spent so much time alone for the last six months of my life. Like there was never anyone around when I was using. It was me, the drug, and then I would sit and want to be around people, and then I'd find people to be around, and I'm like, no, I don't you're taking my drugs you're taking my happiness you know it's just it makes me miserable so i was trying to like just the light came on slowly that was a long way to answer that question no and and you you start opening yourself up to community right to people right and i knew that community when after my mom passed and then her mom passed i was taking care of my grandmother when she died so i was living in her house with her and after they passed, I really had no reason to be at home mm-hmm. in Chicagoland. I really had no reason for it anymore. And I knew that. And I traveled my whole life. I've lived all over this beautiful country. So it's like, I decided, I knew while I was in here that I wanted to be in Indy. Because I had a person who was in here with me, a patient who I loved to death. Um, I wanted to be where he was going. And so... That's where I said, I'm going to go to sober living. Well, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. I would have to have gone to a different house and a different Oxford house. And it just wasn't working out the way I wanted it to. And so I went home thinking that was the right thing to do. And like, it was not also the right thing to do. And so I forgot where I was going. You you get back to the city. Do you start working with the alumni group right away? Do you keep coming back to alumni meetings? So yeah, when I came back here... That was one thing, you know, I didn't have a car Mm. when I came here. I had sold, when I relapsed right after I left RCA for that couple days, the only thing I had of any value left, I had no money, I had no nothing. The only thing I had was a car that I purchased with some money that my mom had left me. I sold that car for a fraction of what it was Mm. worth, for about $500, with the stipulation to my friend that you do not give me any money until I get to Indianapolis, but you buy me a bus ticket. Mm -hmm. And he did. And that's how I got to Indianapolis with a bag of clothes, not a suitcase, a bag of clothes in a sober living house with no money. And he sent me a hundred dollars every couple weeks, um, just to make sure I had food and stuff like that. But right away, my, the kid who I was in here with, um, my friend, 
started to pick me up. I was at a different sober living house a couple miles away from here, so he started picking me up for alumni. And what do you think has been different this time? You said last time you got to step four and then kind of... Trailed off. (laughs) Yeah. So did you make it through step four? I did make it through step four. I have actually, I am on step 10. I have been on step 10 for a little bit just because I start, you know, we all go through ups and downs when we're doing steps is what I'm told from people that I've spoke to. So for some listeners who aren't in recovery or maybe their loved ones in recovery, explain why would somebody get up on step four? So step four is making an inventory of all your fears, your resentments, all the bad stuff that you've done over the past. And for me, it's been 40 years. So it's, it had, it was like 36 to 40 pages of fears, resentments, and bad things. And once they like, I, it was, it's a scary thing to do. That's kind of like the secret. Right. Do you think it relates to, you're kind of opening all that up? It is. That was for me. And it was weird because like I said, I was so scared to do it the previous time that I just didn't do it, didn't try to do it, but it was like, I started writing all this stuff down. I was sitting in that sober living house with like a month sober and I started like writing all this stuff down and it just like started like just vomiting all over the paper. Just all these things that I had no idea that were still in my head, like just people who I thought had wronged me or treated me poorly in my own head. Of course, Mm. it's probably not like that in real life. Some of them were, but those people and those like experiences really shaped who I like turned into as an adult or why I was acting the way I was acting. And that's something I noticed when I talk to a lot of people when they're new in recovery is like, nobody really understands why they've done the things they've done. Nobody really gets why they relapsed or they've had all this time and myself included, like I didn't understand it. Well, I kind of get it now. I'm not going to say 100% I understand why I do the things I have done, but I do understand why I seek approval from other people and why I treat some, you know, treat people poorly. You know, I, I, I get it now. And because of that, I was able to tell somebody about it in step five and then move on with those and try and fix the mistakes that I've made in the past, or at least be willing to. There's always going to be people that you're not going to be able to make amends to. I can't make amends to my mom. I wrote her a letter same with my grandma um i have there's that my wife it's gonna hurt her more you know it's gonna bring up all these silly feelings and you know it's just not safe it's not a good thing for me or for her for me to make amends for with her but i can write a letter and i can never treat somebody like that ever again and so that's the steps were the game changer for me this time sober living actually being open to go to sober living and then actually working on the steps. Awesome. And being a part of this community. And being a part <laughs> of the alumni. I would not be where I am without the alumni here. I remember sitting in there and I remember seeing the people I hang out with now. And I remember I remember like watching them like in there and hearing about all the stuff that they're doing and me being, you know, everyone is in their late 20s, early 30s and I'm 40. And so it was really hard for me to try to put myself out there and start doing things with them. But, you know, we are in group chats now. We went and like, we went to the zoo together. We played volleyball every Saturday together. And on Wednesdays here, we were playing volleyball in the summer. 
go-karting. We're doing the Carmel Winter Games here coming up in February 10th. Oh, that's I mean, super cool. It, I would not be where I am. I wouldn't have any of the friends that I have today. And these are people who actually care about me, who are not just trying to get money out of me, who are not just... They're actually people who care about my well-being, and I care about their well-being, and I just... I wouldn't be where I am without anyone in this... Almost everyone in this building. It's just, it kills me to say, it's just, not kills me, but it's weird to say it, that a building can, but I literally had a bag of clothes before I came into this building. And I have a car, I have an apartment, I have friends, I have an actual life because of this building. And I don't know how to pay it forward or give it back. You know what I'm saying? You, you explained that when we, when you <laughs> sat down and started talking about when people walk in here, you want to make them comfortable. Right. And you, you want to make them not feel afraid. Right. And that it's, you're showing that it's possible. Right. And you're right. And that's, that is paying it forward. Right. I mean, it's, I think my definition is paying yeah. it forward. You're right. And I guess I don't, I also, I don't know if I downplay, I'm used to downplaying myself because of, I don't know really why I've done that, but I've done that my whole life is downplay my role in different parts of my life. And that is something that I need to work on. And you're regaining your confidence. I am. I try to, I am just forever an unconfident person, but I have been doing a lot better with that. I've been listening to people around me instead of just saying they're, there was a lot of gaslighting in my story. There was a lot of people yeah. telling me things that were not, just not the way they really were. And that really caused a lot of issues in my life. And still does. But you got to really start trusting people and trusting the people you care about and trusting the people around you. But A, they're not lying to you because nobody around me is lying to me right now. And just that they are actually who they say they are. What do you say to somebody who's in a dark space. I would just say there is help. You do not have to be alone. There is no reason to sit alone in that dark space anymore. That's good. That's really good. I, I think that's the hardest thing. I think when, when someone's in depression and, it's, we know that addiction is a disease of isolation right? and it gets you alone. And it's so hard to convince people tonight on Wednesday night in Indianapolis, there's a room full of people <laughs> right. that would welcome me with open arms and treat me with love and kindness and compassion. Right. Like it, it's just, it's really hard to convince someone. And, um, I guess I'd have to say, like, come and see. Right. Especially when that person, at least if it was me, has been just run through the ringer and not being able to trust anyone around them because they've been hanging out with people who are not trustworthy people. So it's hard. I mean, that's the biggest hurdle. That was one of the biggest hurdles, like I've already said, is just being able to trust people that they have real intentions and good intentions for me and for other people around them. And what's life like now? Life is really good. I'm tired a lot. 
but it is really good. I have a lot of amazing people, but I have an amazing it's life a, right it's now. It's a good tired. It is a great tired. I used to like, it's, it's funny because I've spent so much time not doing anything. So where it's like, if I go home and I take a nap, like, or I miss going to do something, I feel horrible. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, I talk to people about it and it's like, dude, you're tired. You do a lot. It's, yeah. you know, on the weekends I try and stay busy. Like my car broke. I tried to fix, I tried, I did fix that. Good for you. Thank you. Um, you know, life is just full of me trying to do the best I can every day for everyone around me. And it's not just for me. And I have everyone around me doing the best they can for me. Just, I love that. I like that. It's reciprocal. Right. It's real relationships, right? Right. It's not just me using people because that's really or where my people life using was. You. Exactly. I'm very, very proud of where I am right now in my life. You know, I have, it's not perfect yet. You know, I still do not speak to my dad as much as I'd like to, and that's my fault and his fault. We're both very stubborn. I hurt him very badly my last relapse when he was trying to help me, and you know, he will text me back now if I text him. He did not text me back for a very long time. He had me blocked for a very long time because he was just scared I was going to hurt him again. And I get that. I understand that. I know it's on his time, not mine. But he will text me back and at least make small talk at this point in time. So, you know, baby steps towards certain parts. That's not a small thing. Right. Small talk, it's not <laughs> right. always a small thing. It's not. I'm not great at it oh. all the time. But... Yeah, so I mean, I'm very proud of where my life is right now. Well, Nick, we're very proud of you, and thank you for the contributions you've made here at RCAND, and um, really grateful to have you here. We always end with favorite recovery quote. Do you have one? I don't. (laughs) You don't have one? Do you have many? I I would have to, like, Google that, because I'm not really sure. Okay. No I'm worries. not great at that. Well, you got a bracelet on. What's what do you got? What's it say? It says recovery. Recovery is a lifestyle and oh, normalized cool. sobriety warrior. I would love to take credit for that, but my very good friend Chad made these bracelets. That's cool. Recovery is a lifestyle. Recovery is a lifestyle. That's a pretty good quote. That is a great quote. I wish I would have. Yeah, you were on top of that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you or someone you know needs help, please reach out. We have people standing by. There are buildings near you where you can get help. Call 1-833-RCA-ALUM and talk with someone today. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tap the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners and hope to reach more of you out there as we continue to share these incredible stories of recovery. The RCA alumni team aims to provide a safe, supportive environment for those in the recovery community, regardless of their affiliation with RCA. We host a full calendar of virtual and in-person meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year, as well as free sober events every month. To learn more about what we do, find us at rcaalumni.com. Remember, 
If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, pick up the phone and dial 1-833-RCA-ALUM. Help is available 24-7. Listen to another episode now or join us next time for the Strength and Recovery podcast.